minimalists. <laughs> Howdy, I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. And I'm Ryan Nicodemus, and together we are the minimalists. Welcome to episode 43 of Ask the Minimalist Anything. We have podcast Sean behind the microphones here. He's going to be asking your questions. What do we have first? Is it Chance's question? Yeah, we've got uh, Chance here. Uh, Chance says, I've been thinking about the fear of failure, how it relates to goals and my attachment to that desired future. That attachment had led to chronic stress and anxiety in the past. Presently, it has bled its way into my friendships. Recently, a close friend of mine achieved a past goal of mine that I had thought I had let go of. Mm. Instead of being happy for him, I felt envy. That envy led to guilt. It was as if his success was stolen from me. Intellectually, I understand that success is undefinable as a whole, mm. different for each person. I was wondering if you could expound or expand upon the relationship between envy, guilt, and the fear of failure. Let's start with three things here. Hmm. So first off, Ryan, clearly he had a goal he thought he let go of, but did not let go of. Yes. So what we say is letting go is not something you do, it's something you stop doing. He didn't stop clinging to that goal. He thought he did. It's like when you th throw something away, but somehow it still ends up in the back of your car. Yeah. And you're like, well, I thought I got rid of this thing. Mm. Nope, it's still back there. And so the only way to actually let go isn't to actively let go. It's to stop holding on to it. Mm. The second thing I, I, I hear is that well, it has to do with the narratives we tell ourselves, right? Mm. And, and I think about, so the narrative he tells himself is what? My friend got this thing. He won, so I lost. Mm. But what if I were to change that narrative? Like, imagine our last film, Less Is Now, when it came out. Imagine if you got an Emmy for that film and I didn't. Yeah. I would still feel like because you won, I won. Yeah. Although I would also realize that my need to win would be another problem. So the third thing that I'm looking at here with Chance's question is, well, he said that success, what did he say, Sean, that success is undefinable um, and that it's individual? I think, no, it's eminently definable in our society. Success is always oriented with more, yeah. with some sort of achievement, more money, more status, more success, more, more, more. And that's always a chase. So success, in a way, is always a type of failure because chasing always leads to misery, and misery isn't success at all to me. Yeah. Man, this just makes me think about how hard it is uh, for me in some respects to be happy for, I don't know, like my brother, for example. He is ripped, mm. like shredded, like, yeah. you know, works out a lot. Uh -huh. And I look at him, I'm like, you little bastard. <laughs> like, how dare you be better looking than me? And, you know, I, I can take a step back uh, just as chance it and look at that and be like, well, wait a minute. That's like envy mm -hmm. creeping in right now. And I don't want to perpetuate that. Mm -hmm. So these, these uh, reactions that you have, th these are natural. It's okay that you have that feeling of, of envy or jealousy, whatever it is. What I'll say, though, is if you are perpetuating those feelings, well, th those are that's going to be wasted energy. Uh, jealousy is a wasted emotion, mm -hmm. even though we all experience it every once in a while. Um, uh, you know, it's it's something that, for all intents and purposes, it does us no good. It doesn't it doesn't help us be a better person. It doesn't help us uh, live in a better community. It doesn't strengthen our relationships. It's literally just a wasted 
emotion. So, you know, I think Chance uh, stepping back and having this realization and, and recognizing the symptom and recognizing the problem, I mean, that's really all he can do. I mean, there's nothing I can say to be like, well, just look at it this way and you'll never fear, fear, uh, feel jealousy again. Right. The only thing I would say is maybe I can help you dive a little bit, maybe we can help you dive a little bit deeper with that feeling. You know, why are you feeling envious? Mm. What is it saying about yourself? What is it uh, signaling to you? Is it signaling that maybe uh, you want to try harder to do something else? Is it, uh, is it signaling something to do, you know, with your overinflated ego? I don't know. Only you know that. But certainly jealousy is a symptom that it's, it's great to explore and to figure out why you're feeling jealous and to get to the root of it. But having those feelings, everyone goes through that. I hear, I everyone hear, goes through that. I hear some scarcity in this as well, right? Mm-hmm. And so you, your brother is a great example of that because – the scarcity mindset says, because he has that, I can't. Right. But of course, you can have the same thing as well. Mm. It's like when you see someone else, well, if he got a million dollars, then that's supposed to be my million dollars. Okay, well, two things. One is, he got a million dollars, you can too. However, let's go behind that and say, is that actually going to make you happy? Is that what you're lacking in your life is the million dollars? No, of course not. Yeah. What's our next question, Sean? All right. Next question here is from Stephanie. Stephanie asks, what podcast or other shows do you watch or listen to for inspiration or ideas on how to live? Mm. Quite a few. I mean, uh, books tend to be more inspirational for me. So motivation is intrinsic. Inspiration is, is external, right? So people can inspire me to move in a direction. They can't do the work or the understanding or impart wisdom into me. Knowledge isn't wisdom. In fact, I think too often we get bogged down in information. We have access to all the information now, right? Yeah. And yet we're less wise than we ever have been, (laughs) it feels like. Information overload. Right. And so being able to parse out what information is useful to us and what is superfluous is, has been necessary for me. You know, I, I've talked recently about Anthony DeMello's books really having a profound shift in my life from his books. Also, mm-hmm. Kapil Gupta's work. Um, and then let's also be honest with ourselves that most of these shows and books and things like that, we're often reading, even the self-help stuff, we're reading for entertainment. Yeah. We're not actually getting the profound wisdom in part of us, the, the profound wisdom and truth often comes from stillness, from the pause, from awareness, not from someone else's information. Yeah. You know, when I seek out information, I don't look for a specific person. It's more of a subject matter. Mm. So like with podcasts, you know, I was on a kick there for a while listening to different philosophy podcasts. Um, I can't. Even, there's one called Philosophize This, mm-hmm. but here's the thing: is like Stephen West, is that right? I think it is. Yeah, but it's not going to. Um, it's not going to be the end all be all for philosophy podcasts. And sometimes uh, I'll do a little Google search. Hey, I'm looking for a podcast on this, or maybe I'm looking for a book on this, and I find an author or a, a, a creator, and I take in their information, and it's great. So then I go on to their next thing, and I'm unable to find anything else that does it for me, like that initial, uh, initial thing that I, you know, consumed with, um, a book or a podcast or whatever. So, uh, all that to say is, is that I wouldn't look at people to idolize mm. as much as look at different recipes and approach it 
subject by subject rather than, well, Ryan listens, listens to Sam Harris, so that's who I should listen to. I think that's a great point because also I, I'm thinking about – so our next book that's coming out, a lot of people use things. I, it's in a way almost a, a distillation of our 30s mm. because <laughs> it really is the first book. I mean everything that remains – we wrote when we were 32 years old, yeah. and now this book will be out when we're 40. And so it's like a lot of what happened in our 30s, so Sam Harris, Rob Bell, especially in my early 30s, they had a profound effect on me. Yeah. But if I expected to get the same thing out of them in my 40s as I did in my 30s, well, then I'm not growing either. Yeah. So sometimes we move beyond the things that initially inspired us, and that's actually a sign of growth. Yeah, and also, if you are only stick, if we stuck only to those people who inspired us back in our early 30s, mm-hmm. uh, we're not making room for any other inspiration. Yeah. So, um, yeah, uh, no matter what list of things that Josh and I give here, it's that list isn't going to be the end all be all list. You have to do your own research. I would encourage you to look at it subject by subject and mm. approach things that way rather than looking for like, well, yeah, Josh and Ryan, they, Sam Harris, that's the way to go, Tim yeah. Ferriss. Because I used to listen to Tim Ferriss podcasts all the time. I don't sure. listen to it anymore. It's Same. okay. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's totally fine. Yeah. Who's next? All right. We have uh, Yaman, and he asks, as the faces of the minimalist, knowing well that it's a team effort that has allowed for your success, how do you overcome differences in opinion between the two of you or amongst the team? Mm. Do you have a system in place? For example, a majority vote on a matter. Similarly, I'm sure there are days when even best friends feel a friction of sorts. Sure. How do you work through that? You may have addressed this before, but I'd like to hear an open discussion between Josh and Ryan in regards to those things. Yaman. Shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I know that Ryan could beat me up, and so that's, like, one thing I have to be careful of. It's a dictatorship. Yeah, so here's the thing. I'm going to disagree with part of the question, but then agree with the rest of it. There is no team. And what I mean by that is if we rely on the team, the consensus, there's no... There's no truth in committee, right? You don't make art by committee. Right. You don't make – because committees produce consensus. Individuals produce truth or discover the truth. They don't actually produce the truth. Mm -hmm. And so what we've done with our quote-unquote team is we have individual contributors contributors who are excellent at what they do. Jordan is an excellent filmmaker. Sean is an excellent – everything. Uh, He's what we call our factotum, right? He's an operations guy, but he's also an excellent audio guy, right? He's our Swiss Army Sean. Indeed. Uh, And Jessica is excellent at social media. But if I all of a sudden ask Jessica, well, it's a team, so Jess, I need you to start doing the filmmaking this week. And Jordan, can you please do the audio? Jordan has one ear. Like, Mm. it's going to be harder for him to do the audio. Um, And it's not that he can't do it. He's not as excellent as Sean. If I ask Sean to do the filmmaking stuff, he's he can do it. In fact, we've had him do that kind of mm-hmm. stuff before. And the question is, who were the individual contributors? In terms of Ryan and I disagreeing, we disagree on almost everything, but there's a caveat. No, there. we don't. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> uh, so um, here's what I'll say. Like, I'll give you some examples. Politics, we, we often disagree on politics. Mask wearing, we disagree on that. Vaccines, we disagree on that. Who we vote for, we disagree on that. Our personal beliefs, we disagree on that. Here's the thing, though. 
that any disagreement we actually have is based on beliefs. It's rarely ever based on what the truth is. Mm. It's our understanding, our opinions are different. And so here's what, what I'll say. Even in those things, we don't actually disagree. Disagreeing presupposes something is binary, black and white. Right. Uh, and so the mask thing, I think, is a phenomenal example of this. The, the parody of disagreeing is like you have the person who says, you're supposed to wear a mask 24 mm. hours a day. You have to wear two masks. In mm. fact, it's better if you wear three masks 24 hours a day, even while you're sleeping. Mm. I guarantee you can find one person who thinks that. Sure. Because you can find one person who thinks anything. Yes. And so that's one side of the spectrum. And the other side is it's a conspiracy by George Soros and Bill Gates that has been made to uh, take control of humanity or whatever. And there's no such thing as a coronavirus. Right. 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 And and I heard a a fascinating um, conspiracy theory. It's my favorite new conspiracy theory. It's that Wyoming doesn't exist. (laughs) That reminds me of the birds don't exist. I think at this point, have you seen that? Yeah, I have. If you haven't seen the birds don't exist YouTube video, this guy has to be. He went on some TV shows to talk about how birds don't exist. Yes. Uh, It has to be satire, just like the Wyoming thing has to be satire. One would think. Now, here's the thing. With the mask thing as an example, Ryan and I disagree with both of those people. So really, we agree that we're just somewhere in the middle. And we might have a slightly nuanced perspective, but guess what? That's what makes us human, is the nuance of everything. And so even though you and I disagree on everything, we can do so in a way where it's not, hey, shut up, or hey, you're wrong, or whatever. It's understanding that we have different beliefs, and sometimes our beliefs actually block the truth. You think that proves you're human? (laughs) (laughs) I am not a robot. (laughs) Look, I clicked the box. It said I'm not a robot. If you you have in your life only people who agree with everything you say uh, bring some more people into your life with uh, with different opinions he's yeah. right about that yeah <laughs> look we agreed uh, no what, what I love about uh, Josh and I's relationship is that you know we have this ability to have two different sets of beliefs two different sets of preferences mm. and we can challenge each other on those preferences and it does one or two things either you know if Josh is challenging me on one of my preferences I will either shift my perspective, or I will look at it and be like, oh, you know what? I feel even better about this preference. So having those things challenged actually is a really healthy thing, I feel like. And Josh and I do that all the time uh, as we record on the air. But, you know, ultimately the recipe is this. When you are disagreeing with someone, uh, you want to show them first and foremost that you see where they're coming from. People want to be understood. Mm -hmm. So show them that you understand them. Two, show them respect. So all you got to do is ask yourself, the words coming out of your mouth, <laughs> would you consider those respectful mm-hmm. if they were being uh, spoken to you? So show them that you understand, show them that you respect. And then ultimately with you know our loved ones, just make sure that you are showing them love. And as long as you can focus on those three things during a disagreement, there is no reason why you can't have a healthy conversation and either come to uh, a new truth or uh, be- become more seated into the truth that you already had. And I can respect your perspective. As you you talked about earlier, the preferences. Mm -hmm. Preferences, by definition, can't be wrong. Right. If your preference is for, you know, the the, um, chicken versus the pasta dish or whatever. uh, Nope, Ryan, actually the pasta one is the correct choice. Mm. That's my own ego. Right. And, And once we realize that, like, oh, if I'm trying to just heap my preferences onto someone else, that's my problem. It has nothing to do with you. Yeah. 
Who's next? All right. We've got Nora here. Nora asks, what are your views on online petition groups? Are there some you are assigned for? If so, did you set a limit on how many groups you can support? I am signed up to many online petition groups, Mm. but I feel overwhelmed by the number of emails coming in my my inbox. Sometimes I just delete them. Unsubscribe Mm. from all of those. Yeah. Like I have certainly signed online petitions and here's where they get you. You send a petition and then they're like, donate, share. Yeah. And then the last thing. They punish you. Yeah. And then the last thing. Yeah. They don't respect your time at all. They just try to take, take, take more time. So it's, it's, they want your money. Then they want you to share the petition. Then they're like, great. Now that you're all finished here, how about this petition? And it'll be something in the same vein as the petition that you already signed. So then it's very easy to go down this rabbit hole of just signing petition after petition after petition. Yeah. Um, you've got to know when to stop. So for me personally, when I go to sign an online petition, uh, I sign up for that only that one. Sometimes I'll donate depending on what the cause is. Um, but you have to cut it off there. Any emails I get, uh, I unsubscribe from any of those email lists. I'll tell you, like, I have donated a couple times to, uh, like, a political figure. It, I will never donate again to a Same. political figure. Same. Because it, they literally like, oh, you gave us five bucks? Uh, well, what about this cause? What about this person? What about that? And they do not respect your inbox. In fact, they don't respect your data either. Every, yeah, they don't respect your data. Every time I unsubscribe and it, it has like the list of reasons, I just always check other and I type out this thing of like, hey, just so you know, um, I'm never going to donate to another political candidate in my life because of how many emails you've been sending me and how you don't respect my inbox. It's very uh, it's very inconsiderate. So, um, yeah, if if you... Give them, well, let me say it this way. They will take from you whatever you will give them. So you have to be very clear on what you're giving them. Yes. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. You know, I, my life has also never been changed by a petition. Right. And I'm not saying that that's impossible. I'm just saying that my resources, mm-hmm. my money is one of them, but my more precious resources, my time, my attention, those are being squandered by everyone else's demands. Mm-hmm. And I want to take back those precious resources. Yeah. And so, yes, I've unsubscribed. I don't do the petition thing. I find ways that are better for me to contribute to the world around me yeah. and to my community. Absolutely. Who's next? All right. We've got Patty. How does the pandemic affect the 90-90 rule? I live in Colorado where there are different seasons, but I feel this is a really wonky time as I work from home, limit social interaction, etc. I feel like I could get rid of more clothing, but could be one sad sack post-pandemic. Mm. Wow. You know, what's fascinating about this, Ryan, is is right now is the perfect time for the 99 year It's the end of March. Mm-hmm. So if I go back 30 days, it was like Christmas time, mm-hmm. right? It was middle of winter, right? Yeah. And, and so if I go back 90 days, okay, have I used, pick up any item in your house. Have I used this in the last 90 days uh, in the winter? Am I using it now in the spring? Okay, what about 90 days from now in the summer? If not, I give myself permission to let go. How does a pandemic change that at all? For me, it doesn't. Now, Ryan and I just recorded an episode that actually I think will be out the day after or the day before this comes out about emergency items. Mm. Now, we do make a distinction between uh, so 90 90 rule is for regular everyday items. And then, of course, we have emergency items. 
and we have just for win items. Just for win items might be seasonal decorations that don't fit within the 90-90 rule, yeah. or they uh, we have other um, consumables, toiletries, etc. that don't fit within the 90-90 rule necessarily. But our ev- everyday items, the pandemic didn't change it one bit for me. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't think of anything for me either, but, you know... If you're going by the seasonality rule, there is an opt-out clause with the just for when and the just for emergencies. Um, if you want to hold off on, uh, you know, a massive decluttering until you're more clear on what you're going to use after the pandemic, we give you permission to do that. I mean, what's key yeah. here is that you are getting rid of intentionally. You are consuming intentionally. That's all we care about. Yeah, indeed. Who's next? All right. We have Yuri here. Uh, Yuri asks, I really appreciated the recent discussion on the topic of hope and how we as humans have the tendency to place our own expectations and burdens on others by using the language of hope. Mm. Josh, in that discussion, discussion, you mentioned that hope is different than love. Hmm. Would you be able to speak a bit more about your understanding of the difference? Yeah, this is, might be controversial, but hope is the antithesis of love. Let me explain, explain what I mean by that. Hope tethers us to a future by definition, right? Let me be clear. Hope is not bad. It's not wrong. I'm not saying you should not have hope. I do think, however, we, we appreciate hope to our own detriment. We've been taught that it is a precious resource, that it's something that we should have. Mm. I'm not saying you shouldn't have it. But I'm also not saying you should have hope. I'm never going to go around and tell someone don't have hope for something. What I'm simply saying is hope is an attachment to an outcome in the future. Love is devoid of attachments. To attach oneself to something is not to love it. The only way that we can experience a profound, deep love is by setting aside our beliefs because those beliefs are prejudiced about someone or something and setting aside our hope for some other hypothetical future because love exists only in the present. Hmm. Yeah. I hear you. I hear you. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. And that's love. You hearing me? Yeah. Is, is, a, is a way that you experience love, even yeah. if you don't uh, resonate with that viscerally yeah. yet. And you can even understand it intellectually. But, yeah. but this isn't an intellectual exercise, unfortunately. Right. Because if it was, then it would, be, it would simply be an equation. Ryan, here's the love equation. Yeah. Where, where, I'm, where I am, I mean, there's a lot that I get caught up on um, with what you just said. But the one thing that really stands out is hope is the antithesis of love. But really, the antithesis of love wouldn't be would be hate. So somehow, hoping is hating. No. Is, is, is yeah. What. Okay. So, so again, that that's an intellectual exercise. So mm-hmm. that is the transitive properties of math, right? Mm-hmm. And you're much better at math than I am, and so you you understand the the equation. But but of course, this is more like poetry than it is mathematics. And well, and to, and to that point, what Josh is saying is highly individual. And it's, it sounds like, um, uh, in a way, a preference of how you, how you approach the th- that thought exercise of, of hope being the antithesis of love. So, uh, yes, it's more of an art than mm-hmm. it is a quantifiable calculation. Well, all I'll say is the place where we can agree is hope always says something about the future, right? Mm-hmm. Hope doesn't say something about the past. You're not saying... 
I hope my dad treats me better as a kid, right? Right, right. It's always something, I hope something changes for the future, it's right? It's anticipation, yeah. And love exists only in the present. And so mm-hmm. even if we're not saying it's the antithesis, if that, if that is too extreme for you, mm-hmm. let's just recognize they are two separate things. Oh. One exists in the now, yeah. one exists in the future. I don't, I, I actually, and I don't know why I'm trying to find a way to articulate this, but I don't. I've never thought that hope and love are synonymous. Yeah, same. Yeah, I mean, really, you've got, if anything, love will spark hope inside of me just because of, like with Josh, I really hope that he feels better Mm -hmm. and that his uh, digestive tract and all of his stomach problems and his immune system, I hope hope it gets better Mm -hmm. and that he, he becomes a healthy individual because I love him. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, if anything, I think love maybe can can cause the hope. And that's maybe what you're saying of, you know, be careful with mm-hmm. what you let that love spark inside of you. Oh, yes. Yeah. Then that is the place at which we meet. Yeah. Who's next? All right. We've got uh, Cindy. So Cindy asks, You've both written and talked in detail about what didn't add value to your life in the past, as well as chasing the American dream. Mm -hmm. What currently does add value to your everyday life Mm -hmm. from the everyday little things to the bigger things? So this is not a plug for our next book, but since we we're sort of submerged in it right now. We wrote this book. It sort of started as a relationship book. Ryan and I started asking some questions of ourselves like, because I realized, like, hey, we had written these, these books, these three books, Minimalism, Essential, and Everything That Remains, and it was sort of these three different approaches toward minimalism. What have we learned over the last decade, really? And a lot of it had to do with our relationships. Mm-hmm. And what I learned was relationship with people is often burdened by all of our other relationships. Mm-hmm. And so when you guys started sort of outlining this book, it was like, oh, well, what are the relationships we need to quote unquote fix? You're not actually fixing them. What are the relationships we need to better understand so that we can in better enjoy the true relationships that have value to our lives, which are relationships with people? Mm-hmm. And so we identified seven essential relationships. You might even say there's eight, and we could talk about those real quick. The first one is with the stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I think our first three books address that relationship with stuff really well. We reprise some of those arguments in the first chapter of Love People Use Things. But after that, it's like, okay, what are the other relationships that are really stifling our relationships with people? And what we identified was, well, we have our relationship with the truth. Mm -hmm. Man, that one's difficult. Mm -hmm. Our relationship with ourselves, Mm -hmm. our relationship with our values, our relationship with money our relationship with creativity. And also, I think within that creativity, you could also say our relationship with our distractions yeah. or our technology, which is the number one uh, weapon of mass distraction. Yeah. And then ultimately our relationship with people. Mm. And so it's a relationship book, but it's a, re- it's a relationship book with all of the, the other relationships that impede our relationships with people. So what do I get value from now? generally my relationships with other people, but also from my creativity, from understanding my values. And what do I get value from the most? Peace. Mm. Yeah. Well, you know, any, any physical items that add value to my life today, they may not add value tomorrow. So if anything, you know, I value the, the, the power of being able to let go pretty easily. I love the, the power of um, not being attached so, I mean, those are really 
you know, those are really the things that I find value in. It's there's really not a thing. Yeah, I use my coffee filters and my coffee and you know my grinder and uh, I've got a soda stream. I mean, I could sit here and list all these things to you, but ultimately I'm not attached to any of those things, and I am constantly questioning any attachments I do have. Hmm. You're, I thought you were on OkCupid, okay not Grinder. <laughs> we have another question. Hello. Yep. This is the last one here. It's uh, from Kareem. Kareem asks, when do you decide it's time to re- replace something that you find a lot of use from? For example, clothes or really any other item in your house that serves a purpose. Ah. And he had an addendum on here. I think it's a she. Oh, is it she? Oh, I, I apologize. My apologies. Uh, I feel like I might have answered my own question. Explanation <laughs> point. Replace the item when it is no longer serving its intended purpose? Mm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I like that answer a lot, actually. There, there's two things that really stand out to me here. One is almost always if we ask the uh, question that is a good quality question or a high quality question, better way to put it, mm-hmm. if we ask a high quality question often – the answer is in the question. Yeah. And, and uh, Kapil Gupta would say that we often make statements that are retrofitted with a question mark. Mm. And, and so we, we know the answer already. We just put a question mark at the end. Now, I'll say one other thing. Sometimes I try to uh, repair something before I replace the thing. Here's an example. Recently, I have a hairdryer that uh, stopped working. The, the transformer in the plug stopped working. And it cost me more money to repair the hairdryer than to replace it. It cost me $74 to repair my hairdryer. Dude, I did this with my tea kettle. Really? Yeah, but the guy talked me out of uh, repairing it. Uh, Because I brought it in. I'm like, I know it's just some little short that happened. It just needs to be reconnected. He was like, like, dude, it's going to cost you four times as much to repair this item than it is to just replace it. Mm. And... Depending on what the item is, because maybe there are there is a time where you spend more to get it repaired, mm-hmm. so you don't you know consume another thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, ultimately, when it stops adding value, that's when it's time to be replaced. Yeah, yeah. All right, y'all. Thank you so much for being VIPs yes. and true fans. Y'all are awesome. We're so grateful. Oh, by the way, check out the we did a clubhouse and and it's ephemeral, so it's out. It's gone out in the ether unless you are a true fan or VIP, Jordan captured that event, that live event, and it's now available on Patreon for you to enjoy. Heck yeah. We'll see you next time. See ya. The Minimalists.